0: I'm Jeff Cohen. Shmuel Bolan is a user experience specialist, or as he says, a UX wizard with the beard to prove it. When he's not making user experience more pleasant and productive for his clients and customers or the companies he's worked for, he's the chazan and gabai rishon at the Chabad shul he attends. His path to tour observance included stops, one might even say detours, in some remote and surprising places. Shmuel, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos.
1: Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here.
0: So there is a lot to unpack even just from that intro. So let's take it from the top. Where, where were you born and raised?
1: I was born in London in the UK and moved to Belgium when I was about six. We lived in, uh, outside Antwerp for about a year and a half and then moved to the States and kind of bounced around between Chicago and various places in New England. And we finally settled in a town called Sudbury, which is about 20 miles west of Boston and, and
0: quite near to where I am right now. So with all that moving around, what was your level of Jewish observance and some of the customs that your family did at that stage of your life?
1: Well, my father is actually not Jewish. So growing up as a kid in England, we were definitely closer to his family. It didn't mean that um, I went anywhere on a Sunday or anything like that, um, but it did mean that on December 25th, there were some presents that would mysteriously uh, materialize. And when we moved to Belgium, there was even a, um, a pair of wooden shoes that you would put at the bottom of your bed. And in the morning, there would be chocolates and so forth. But I do remember once a year or so going to visit <laughs> my mother's family and going to a place on a Saturday And I have a memory there of being taken to visit the rabbi afterwards, um, an impossibly tall and imposing person. British Jews in those days wore top hats, which, you know, as a kid, that's kind of extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And then this person bent down to hand me a a boiled candy, which I I took. And then when we moved to the United States, my mother's father passed away. So he was the, you know, the main Jewish influence in the family. I mean, at that point, my mother decided that we would start to do more Jewish things. So we began to go to synagogue then. And, um, you know, then there was Hanukkah and um, we would have Passover. And so probably when I was about eight or nine or ten, not only was I the weird British kid, but I was also now the Jewish kid. What kind of shul was it that you were attending in Massachusetts? We only attended um, conservative for the most part. The one that was most influential was in Connecticut, a town called Trumbull, Connecticut. Um, The rabbi was actually from, um, and he there was no microphones in use, and there was no mechitza, but all of the proceedings were conducted on a stage that was higher than a certain height. So halachically, there was no problem for him. And he actually distributed, as we, I think, as we became graduates of the Hebrew High School, I think I was 15, he gave a Kitzer shulchan aruch as a gift, which I still have. And that was the first time I kind of realized, whoa, there's more to Judaism than Hanukkah and Pesach and Shabbos. There's stuff in here about how to tie your shoes, about how to dress, how to get dressed. How, you know, this is amazing. But at the same time, I really wondered, well, nobody I know does any of these things. So what is this? So did you end up having a bar mitzvah around that time? I had a bar mitzvah. I had a bar mitzvah. I did not lane. Um, I did the Haftida And my, my grandmother, Alei Shalom, she flew in from England and she cried in the front row because I was the first of her grandsons to have
0: a bar mitzvah. My, my older cousins didn't do anything Jewish. So when my son had his bar mitzvah recently, the rabbi gave him a chumash and a sitter as a gift. Did you get something similar at your bar mitzvah? I got a pocket sitter.
1: And I remember looking through it. And again, I found a whole page of prayers for things like hearing thunder, seeing lightning. You know? Wow, that's interesting. Maybe a week or so later, big thunderstorm comes through, three o'clock in the morning, woke me up, I grabbed my pocket sitter, I ran to the window, put on my yarmulke, and I waited, and I sent the blessings. I remember that very clearly.
0: And what was your perspective just in general on Judaism at this stage of your life, and kind of what role it was going to play in your life?
1: Well, there was a disconnect between what I had begun to understand Judaism might actually be, and the things that we were doing in our lives. By then we would we would build a sukkah. The rabbi came to the sukkah. I actually have a newspaper clipping from then. So it definitely had a concrete, you know, yearly cycle to it. There were things that you did, right? There was Shabbos and there was Yantif and but it seemed like it had an end point, you know, roughly around the time you became Bar Mitzvah, you're like, okay, here's your pocket sitter. And, you know, thank you so much for coming and and goodbye. You know, I found it hard to figure out, well, now what? What do I do with it now? Um, and there wasn't really anyone at that time that, um, that I knew that could advise me. Didn't have, you know, my, I didn't have a grandfather. Uh, my older cousin, my older male cousin, didn't know anything, lived in England. My father's family, they're, they're not Jewish. So I had cousins there that I knew, but they weren't Jewish. Um, and none of the people in my graduating Hebrew high school class really had much interest. It was just a cultural thing. So that was the struggle for me. was like, well, well, now what? So I, th- I think probably around that time, I really began to kind of set it on the side. And there was nobody to tell me that, that there was anything wrong with that. I three younger brothers, and they were all getting ready for their bar mitzvahs, which they did, and I, and I went. Um, but again, it sort of seemed like that was the goal. Once you reach the goal, the game's over.
0: So you just said about keeping it kind of on the side. So does that carry into your college years? You're focused on your education and where you're going to school and religion is more on the back burner at that point?
1: Yeah, quite definitely so. I think by the time I got to college, I just had a strong interest in you know the things that most college students have a strong interest in, which are purely material and no thought whatsoever about any kind of bigger picture or or what might be in the future or or anything, just, you know, day-to-day existence, which can be quite mundane and and can kind of drive you to sort of more and more extremes, I guess. I think I struggled to identify who I was or how I should behave, you know, a lot of moving around and, you know, these cultural influences that didn't mesh so I didn't really have a firm foundation. So college was a, you know, a little bit of a wild ride. Nothing, nothing crazy. I got into the music scene. Um, I was in a band. I managed a band. Um, I hung around with some quite famous bands. Um, I was able to, um, to meet and hang around with a band from Ireland called The Pogues. And um, through traveling with them, I got to hang out with you 2 And the Beastie Boys and, uh, you know, so that was quite exhilarating, but nothing, nothing really long lasting. Those were all sort of temporary experiences.
0: So you're mentioning these bands that you were circling around, but this calm demeanor that you have as we're having this interview is fascinating to me because I understand that it wasn't just about meeting some of these bands. You actually get involved with some of these bands and you become the frontman for a hardcore punk band. So take me mm-hmm. through this calm guy I'm looking at today who has this beautiful long beard. I'm guessing is not the person you were in your late teens and early 20s who's fronting a, mm. a punk rock band. So tell me about that part of your life.
1: I think it's a question of, of identity, of, of feeling that I have something unique to offer, and feeling that I have a unique characteristic, but not being sure what that is. You know, now, you and I sitting here now can talk about the soul, you know, desperate to express itself. You know, if you think about a six-month-old baby riding a raging bull elephant, right, trying to control it with two little strings, it's not going to happen. But nonetheless, the baby's there. You know, the soul is there and the soul wants to express itself. And um, there was definitely a, a an influence from above that was kind of nurturing that. So feeling different and then wanting to express that difference, I think, came out as being a punk rocker because it's a, a very easy way to attract a lot of attention. And then that sort of satisfies that inner yearning to be different the knowledge that you're different and then wanting that to be apparent to others as well that's like a very again that that focus on immediate gratification hey no problem just give yourself a mohawk and a few piercings and people will begin to look at you and 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 want to know the same things you want to know who who are you and and what are you up to and 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 so forth so and that's once people are looking at you and there's a kind of excitement you know maybe that's what <laughs> brings it out from within you you know like you look in a mirror you you see yourself so so whatever you're seeing from other
0: people it can be easy to reflect back to them which I did so it's hard to believe I'm looking at you right now and I'm seeing someone who who easily passes as a Hasidic rabbi and you're telling me there's a period in your life where you have a mohawk and I'm assuming the, the garb that goes with being a punk rocker so how do you contrast those two versions of yourself looking back on it now
1: well, I think, Jeff, that we grow like trees. We don't grow like in a linear fashion. You can't look back at somebody you once were. You can look within, and that person is still there, right? They're a ring uh, in there. and And that's a phase on a journey from the seed to the full-grown tree. There are different phases, and trying to, you know, trying to look back. First of all, living them out as you feel they should be lived when you're going through it is a great way to progress on your journey. Uh, and then looking back and and learning a little bit more about who you are from those experiences. I think it's easier when you see it as still something that's within you, like a tree, right? It's a, it's a great Jewish analogy anyway, right? We're, we are likened to trees, and I think that that's it, it has informed who you are today. There are positive elements to it and and the opposite and you can strengthen the positive elements and you can you know you can learn from the things that aren't positive um and you know the fact that i am i am the Chazan today <laughs> is is a lot of fun for me to imagine me doing <laughs> the same sorts of things it's my soul expressing itself now it's through words of tefillah um, and then it was you know through words of more emotional expression and now, then it was more of a show, and, and now it's more as a, it's as a representative. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of similarities there, and there's there's a great con- like continuity
0: there. And so for the punk rock fans who are listening to us, tell us what was the name of your band, maybe a couple of the songs that were the more popular ones. The way the band came about was there was a, an older guy. When I say older, I mean
1: he was in his early 20s, and, and you know, I was in my late teens. He had been in a in an earlier incarnation of a, a punk rock band. They're, they were called the Vandals. And he had um, amassed some proficiency with with writing songs, and he knew a lot of the people in the local club scene. So he decided to, to try to form another band of, of younger people, which he did. I cannot remember how somebody recommended me to him, but um, he didn't even need to audition me. Once he saw what I looked like, that was enough. You know, you're in the band. So we formed a band and then we needed to find a name. So a few, a few options went back and forth. And, um, I was living in a dormitory at the university of Massachusetts at Amherst. And there were, there were a pair of roommates down the hall who were Vikings. What do I mean? (laughs) They were members of a, of a Viking club, and they dressed like Vikings. They wore chain mail and boots and helmets, and they carried around shields all day long. And one of the things they did to amuse themselves was they invented band names and, um, and, and, and names for band songs and so forth. So I said to them, okay, well, what do you have for us? And they said, how about all-white jury? And I said, okay, because I think we had a show the following evening and and we needed a name. So we we thought, okay, that's controversial. That will likely get people to ask us, why did you choose that name? What does that mean to you? And I think at the time we, we wanted to believe that we had, you know, some social justice instincts. Most young people do. They might not know a whole lot about why they believe what they believe, but they know they believe it. And that was a great way for us to kind of lay our claim to that you know by having a name like that and that's that's what happened
0: so let's play a a clip from your band all white jury to give our listeners a, a sense of the kind of music that you were playing during those college years Okay, so as somebody who grew up listening to Top 40 on the radio, tell me what I'm missing in terms of an appreciation for punk rock music as someone who just didn't personally get into it during that stage of my life. Well, it was really a reaction to Top
1: 40 music. There was a feeling that if you were a young person, you were basically doomed to an existence of corporate involvement. You were going to work for a corporation. You were going to buy your food and your clothing from a corporation. You were going to listen to your music and read your news from a corporation. And you're going to be stifled creatively, intellectually, culturally. You're going to be controlled. And the music industry, the entire entertainment industry, was you know fairly rigidly controlled. When punk rock came along, you were liberated from that. And being liberated is exhilarating and... Being exhilarated means that you are highly active and, and the music is, has to be very fast and very different. And it's really focused more on emotional impact, which kind of celebrates that, that exuberance of, of being liberated. Um, and that's hard to sustain. So the songs are typically quite short. They're kind of bursts of energy. We might play all of our songs in, in one show and, and have a 15-minute set, for example, uh, and then the next band would come on and they might say to us could could we just use your instruments sure go ahead just take our instruments so it wasn't so much about the polish and about um about anything other than the impact are you able to make a strong impact and um so that's that's why you you know it sounds very different than what you heard growing up because it it had to be in order to identify itself as being something non-corporate and and you know really Countercultural, almost subversive in nature, because that's quite appealing to 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 youth.
0: And so I understand beyond all white jury, you also got involved in in a fairly well-known band called Dinosaur Jr. So tell me how that came about. Dinosaur Jr. are from Amherst, Massachusetts. Two of the members were in a band called Deep
1: Wound, and our band played with their band almost all of our shows. I would say, you know. More than half of our shows were, were played along with them, and um, they um, later became Dinosaur Jr. Our drummer joined Dinosaur Jr. So um, to this day, he's he's their drummer, a guy named Murph. Uh, I'm still friendly with um, Jay Mascus and with Murph. I went to visit. I took one of my sons to visit Jay and Murph a few years ago. The uh, son is interested in music. And we definitely reflected on where we are now versus where we were then. It's funny when you can you have a shared experience like that, which was very intense, and then you have similar lives now. You know, you have you have families, you have a home, you have a dog, um, and you can you can still look at each other, see quite a big difference, but yet connect fairly instantly back. To those times. And I think, again, that's because we grow like trees rather than in a linear way. It doesn't take long to to reach that common ground. And um yeah, that's what happened. I, I ended up, you know, managing Dinosaur Jr. for a short time. There were a few other people that were also trying to get them gigs and so forth. Traveled with them locally many times to shows in New York. Pretty hair-raising, you know, experiences at CBGBs very unsafe parts of town um, in the 1980s, right? New York was, was was not the New York it is today. And um, yeah, great experiences, character-building experiences. Yeah, I was glad to have been a part of it.
0: So so is there a point now as you're getting through college that you're transitioning out of this scene and starting to figure out, well, am I staying here? Am I going to do something else for the rest of my life? Take me through that that graduation point and starting to think about the next phase of your life. So as college came
1: to an end, I began to wonder what would be after college, much like as my bar mitzvah passed, I wondered, now what? Um, As college was coming to an end, I began to have almost a panicked feeling, I think, about what would be after that. And the final assignment that I had to turn in was a research paper on a book by an Irish author called James Joyce, and the book is called Ulysses. It's a very dense book. It has a deceptively approachable introduction, and it quickly descends into something completely unapproachable. And I wrote a very high-quality research paper that was due at 10 a.m. on a particular Tuesday, and that was my last assignment from my college career. And I knew that if I didn't turn it in by that time, it wouldn't get graded, I would fail the course, I would not get credit for the course, and I would not graduate, which would solve this problem of what to do after college, because... There would be no after college. I would still be in college, and as I I walked down across the campus holding the paper, and I approached his office, and I had those thoughts in my mind, and I and I knew that the moment I let go of that paper, I will have graduated. I'll be a graduate, and there there was a thought that maybe I would maybe I would just throw it in the garbage and uh, and and know what what I was going to be doing in the fall. But no, I. I held it just for a, just for a second in the mail slot on the professor's door, and I let it go. And, and as I let it go, I told myself, "Okay, you know, you're a graduate. You know, now what?" And that summer, and that fall, you know, we're not we're not happy times. Internally, I got a job. I lived with my parents, but um, was was adrift, totally rudderless, and it was a. About that time that I became interested in Native American mythology and Native American history and um, and then Native American customs and practices because it seemed fairly genuine and it seemed fairly interesting and uh, I began attending powwows in Massachusetts and, and just kind of meeting people and and just getting involved in that culture.
0: So if you think about Judaism there's obviously an element of spirituality there are you searching for something spiritual as you as you're investigating this sort of alternative path at this stage of your life I think unconsciously I was and then very quickly
1: became conscious I remember I had been given a bread maker and I had been given a coffee machine that had a timer so one night before I went to bed I filled up the bread machine with the ingredients And I set it to start at 2 a.m. so that at 6 a.m. the bread would be ready. And I set the coffee machine to start at 5.30 a.m. so that at 6 a.m. the coffee would be ready. And I got up and I had a fresh piece of bread and a fresh cup of coffee. And on the one hand, I was thinking, wow, this is great. On the other hand, I was thinking, this is disgusting. This is it? (laughs) This is why you go to sleep? So that you could get up and have a piece of bread and a cup of coffee? There has to be more than this. Feh, this is awful. And um, that's when I realized it was more of a full-on craving for a spiritual path that I could follow, that I would be comfortable with. And in my mind, it was not Judaism, because I had already looked at that. So I began um, investigating Native American spirituality more, and I needed something really genuine, um, you know, like like the punk rock version of Native American spirituality, the most extreme you know, thing you could get into. Um, so I ended up meeting um, a medicine man from, from Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in, in South Dakota who was a great-grandson of, of a medicine man called um, Chips. And he was actually Crazy Horse's medicine man, this guy's great-grandfather. And, um, and I went out there. I went to Pine Ridge, and I, I became a helper, to this medicine man, I participated in various ceremonies. There's no, no drugs are involved. There's no indecency involved. It's actually quite modest, which was interesting. And you know, a, a, re, a very real spiritual pursuit with fasting and, and visions and, and that sort of thing. And I stayed out there for, I was there for three weeks and I decided maybe I'll stay out here for a while. My parents were not very happy about that and they asked me to just come home first. So I did go back home, and uh, I remember my mother asking me, what is it about that culture that's so interesting to you? And I said, well, you know, they, um, they have these really cool customs, and they have these really interesting names. You know, you meet a guy whose name is Waylon Long Elk. You know, wow. Or a guy whose last name is Conquering Bear. You know? <laughs> and she said to me, well, you have an interesting name too. You have a Hebrew name and you have all kinds of customs. And I realized, yeah, that's actually true. I do, you know, but I began thinking, you know, my, the the rabbis that I had growing up were very regular looking people and they had regular names and it really wasn't anything appealing to me. So about maybe a day or two later, one of my friends, uh, a non-Jew said to me, aren't you Jewish, aren't you? And I said, I am. And he said, what's going on in New York? I said, I, I don't know anything about New York. What do you mean? And he said, there's a whole story about the Messiah. and, and... So it turns out that the, the week that I left South Dakota was the week of Gimel Thomas in 1994. And, and the event that really precipitated my leaving the Indian Reservation actually was on Gimel Thomas. I found out later through re- reverse engineering. So he said, this friend of mine said to me, look at the newspaper. He showed me the newspaper, and there was a picture of the Rebbe, and the the Rebbe's name. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a rabbi. That's a (laughs) rabbi. Okay. So that began my journey to Lubavitch. Very, very quickly after that point, I I have an aunt who lives in Israel. I spoke to her. She said to me, it sounds like you need to call Chabad. And I was like, "What? what is Chabad? I looked in the yellow pages. I found uh, the address of the Chabad Center that I attend today. So that was, you know, 25 years ago. And here I am.
0: But were you thinking at the time, I'm on this quest for spirituality. I want to connect to something. But as I'm reading this newspaper, are you having this? conscious thought of maybe i've been searching in the wrong places like i'm on the right path that i'm searching but all this stuff Mm -hmm. i've been doing in the last several weeks is not the right road to be on and this is pointing me in a in a totally different direction what it made me realize is
1: that um they're almost different directions i mean the judaism that i was brought up with had no substance it was a garment that you could put on or take off so i didn't necessarily feel like it was a return to that I felt like it was a return to something much, much deeper. And I was delighted to speak with my, I had at the time, a great aunt, my grandfather's sister, who never married. She passed away maybe 10 years ago. And she sent me some family uh, items, including this photograph of my great, great grandfather. So I thought, okay, that's me. That's me. That's me. Not what I was raised with, which was sort of a, a version of that. But that's me. And again, then it was um, all of the energy and the, and the exhilaration and the exuberance of liberation, being liberated from the problem of not knowing who you are and what you should be doing. That's an awful feeling, Jeff. I have all this energy, all this creativity and all this desire. And I, I, don't, think I'm, I don't think I'm pointing it at the right place. All of a sudden you are and you know you are. Well, you know please do not stand in my way because it won't go well. So it was a very quick adoption of from of lifestyle from that point.
0: So let's slow that down for a second. You, you get involved with Chabad. What are some of those early things you're learning? What are some of the things you're taking on at the beginning? Well, the first meeting I had with
1: the, with the Shliach here, he wanted to find out for me, are you, first, are you Jewish, Right. He's not gonna to say to me, are you really Jewish? He's asking a few questions, you know, what's your mother's maiden name? So my mother's maiden name is a, a slightly Anglicized version of a very Jewish name. It was Schocket, right? That's That was an Anglicization, if that's a word, of, of a very Jewish name. Many Jews in England, my, my, my grandmother's na- last name was, was Schneider and they changed it to Taylor because during World War I, you couldn't have a German sounding name. So I said, shock it. And he said, oh, sheichet. And I realized, oh, yeah, that's right. It hadn't occurred to me. I knew what a sheichet was, but it hadn't occurred to me that that was, that was my mother's maiden name. And he said to me, let me ask you this. When was the last time you put on tefillin? I said, yeah, I don't know, 15 years. He goes, let's go right now. And um, I rolled up my sleeves. and I put on tefillin. And he helped me say shema word for word. Then I began to feel, you know, feelings of comfort and security and knowledge that like, wow, okay. Yeah. You know, just like the Lakota Indian practices, they have these, these unique practices that are deeply meaningful, but they're not mine. I'm not f- from that tribe or, or, you know, I'm from a different tribe and we have our own practices and, and they're mine and they're lying here in front of me right now. So big awakening. And, um, you know, I was, I guess I was in my early thirties. So you know, a big desire to kind of make up for lost time.
0: So are you feeling at this point like you're catching up on understanding Judaism from an educational standpoint or that, wow, I'm learning things that I actually want to integrate into my life and start start living in a different way than I was before? It was it was
1: the, the, the practice, it was Jewish practice. You know, I wanted to direct all of my energies to serving the creator. You know, I felt a very strong connection with the creator wanting to make sure that I'm aligned with the expectations of the creator. So that really did come first. And then, you know, learning the whys and the wherefores later. I mean, it was a real like nasa and Nishma kind of moment where the Nasa is first. I'll get to the Nishma, but I'm not going to wait to understand. First of all, how could you truly understand, right? It's Ein Seif. If I wait till I understand, I, I might never do anything. But I'll now begin to change my lifestyle to one that I'm comfortable with. I began to feel like my inner self and my outer self
0: were in sync for the first time. And so what are you doing career-wise at this point, And how are you balancing that versus this journey to observance that you're now on? Well, along with my inner
1: discontent of my teens and 20s, you know, career-wise, I, I, I was a little bit undirected. And right around that time, maybe a few years before, I went to a temporary agency and I said to them, look, I don't know what I want to do for a living. Can you place me at a company at an entry-level position where that company does lots of different things? And then maybe from the inside out, I'll, I'll identify something I want to do. And they said, yeah, we have a a temporary position at a local um, consumer electronics company called Bose Corporation, which many people have have probably heard of. I started there. I worked there for just a few months, and I began to realize that I could add a lot of value to this very mundane task I was doing. And I did that, and I used that to get a corporate job where I had a salary, I had benefits, um, I was getting paid pretty well and was on a path for, for corporate success there, which on the one hand was good. And on the other hand, it didn't really, I didn't really feel like I wasn't motivated to do any better at it because again, I didn't know what I was going to do with all those resources. So, um, fortunately by the time I needed to keep Shabbos and and keep kosher and do all those things, I was working at a, you know, a salaried white collar position where there's no problem. You're not going to work on Shabbos. You need to take a holiday off. You take a holiday off. You have paid vacation. You choose when you want to take it off. So I, I never, fortunately, I never had those struggles.
0: But are you wearing the the keep it to work? Are you starting to grow out the beard, other outward Jewish things that people are seeing? Or are you keeping those lives separate at this point?
1: Well, in those days, you wore a suit to work. So I started wearing dark suits, began to let my beard grow out. And right away, you know, people started to say to me, you need to shave, you look terrible. And I said, no, I'm planning, I'm planning to grow a full beard. And also I had begun to use my Hebrew name um, outside of work, but not inside work. So one day I decided um, it's time to make the switch. And I was presenting to um, about 300 people in this auditorium. Bose has a an acoustically perfect auditorium. They should. And I, yeah. And I told the person who was running the presentation, you're going to introduce me as Shmuel Bolin. And he was like, but what are you talking about? Everyone here knows you as something else. And not only that, but, you know, I knew that my name is a little tricky to pronounce. True enough, the CIO introduced me, and it took him three tries to get my first name right. I wasn't going to say anything, but after that introduction, I said, um, you're probably all wondering who is Shmuel Bolin. <laughs> and I said, it's, it's me. You may have known me as a different name, but a Shmuel is a name I was given at birth, and I've decided now I'm going to use that name. And I know it's difficult to pronounce, so I'd like to lead you all now through a pronunciation. I said, it's three syllables. Everybody along with me, shh, and then moo, cow, <laughs> and then L. We did a big L. So everyone did it. Everyone was laughing. I said, let's, tr- an- one more time. We went through it a second time and then a third time and um, major round of applause. Everybody loved it. And for years after that, people would see me in the hall and they would either do the, this, this or the <laughs> or the cow. Um, and then that was it. I was switched over.
0: Wow. You picked a really public
1: time to make that switch. Yep. Jump in, you know, head first and and just go for it. I really didn't see any other way to do it. I wasn't comfortable trying to dance at two weddings so for me it it made sense to do that and i even ended up legally dropping my english name and, and only having my hebrew name so that's it i just have a name
0: and so where along this journey do marriage and children come into the picture and tell us a little about your wife's background where her level of observance was growing up and as you two were becoming a couple so
1: she followed somewhat of a similar path um had grown up in south africa in a fairly secular family that, you know, was Jewish. I mean, Jewish South Africans are like Jewish English people. They're Jewish. Um, They might eat whatever they eat and, you know, do whatever they do, but they're definitely Jewish. And um, her family moved to Canada right around the same phase in her life as, as my family moved to America, which was traumatic for both of us. She's the oldest. I'm the oldest you know, moved to a new country and, and and still trying to justify those two worlds, the Jewish world and the not-Jewish world. Um, she has a brother who became a Lubavitcher in um, the early 90s, and gradually he influenced my wife and her sister to begin doing Jewish things. My wife actually went to seminary. She went to Neveh Yerushalayim for a year, um, moved back to the States and lived with Her sister in Crown Heights, her sister had moved to Crown Heights, so she moved to Crown Heights. And then her sister left, so she kept the apartment in Crown Heights. And we were introduced through um, a... There was a young family living here in Natick who were from Toronto. And the wife wanted to be... She wanted to start a shatran business. They told me, you're going to be our first case. (laughs) And um, they went back to Toronto. My mother-in-law and this woman's mother were close friends. So my mother-in-law came to visit her friend and, and saw this, this woman. Oh, so-and-so, you're where do you live now? Oh, we live outside Boston. And what do you do? Trying to be a Shatran. Oh, so you should find somebody for my daughter. Okay, tell us about her. So my mother-in-law says, well, she likes snowshoeing. And they're like, snowshoeing? The only time they'd ever heard of snowshoeing is when I asked her husband, who was a rabbi, could you wear snowshoes on Shabbos to show? <laughs> so, like snowshoeing, Shmuel, how old is she? They asked a few questions, and, and they said at the time they realized this is a shidduch right here, and uh, and it was. So, within within a month or two, we were emailing and calling. I went to Crown Heights in Elul, so that was in the summer. In Elul, I went to Crown Heights to get my tefillin checked, and we met. And um, I went to to Toronto for Sukkot for the first days of Sukkot, and we got engaged there. And we were married uh, in Shvat. So similar life stories to that point, you know, similar interests. And um, yeah, we got married in 2001, and we moved here, and we've been here ever since. We have, thank God, we have five children. They were brought up in Lubavitch schools in Boston. Uh, and now are, you know, some are in college and, and some are in um, Torah Academy schools in Boston. One is in the yeshiva in Boston. And um, yeah, here we are and, and grateful to be here.
0: So how much do you tell them, your five kids you mentioned, about your and your wife's journey and how you were raised versus how you're choosing to mm-hmm. raise them?
1: So the, the oldest one, we told nothing The youngest one, we tell everything.
0: (laughs) Why? Why did you make that decision? (laughs)
1: Um, I think it's because, uh, you know, when we had our first child, we were both really just a few years into our journey. So, you know, there's this strong rejection of anything not Jewish, right? There's just no interest in that whatsoever. You're, You're building up yourself. You're building up your own fortitude and your own, you know, identity. So you don't want to have anything to do with any of that. And then, you know, hopefully five or 10 years or so into it, you've, you've started to like realize like, Hey, I can, just because I, I walk down the street, it doesn't mean I'm going to end up wearing a Red Sox cap, you know, even though everyone else might be, I'm, I'm stronger now. I, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't phase me. And so by the, you know, by the time the youngest kid, the older ones tell the younger ones anyway, the older ones have found out, you know, this way or that way. We were just in Toronto for for Sookas, and I have two nieces there who are now in their mid-teens and um, hadn't seen them in two years because of COVID. And, and prior to that, they were a bit younger, so they were intensely curious about me, um, and they basically interviewed me, much like you're doing now, Jeff. <laughs> and um, I remember feeling then like it wasn't hard or, or painful for me to share any details, whereas earlier it certainly was those were not things i i wanted to talk about at all they weren't deep enough inside the tree yet jeff mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying they weren't deep enough inside they didn't have enough layers outside them yet so um it is what it is you know you came from where you came from and throughout our history there have been you know some of our greatest figures came from backgrounds that weren't necessarily spotless um, and some people from spotless backgrounds end up in places that are not spotless. <laughs> <Do> you know <laughs> what I mean? So um, where where Chuva stand, uh, a tzaddik cannot stand. So we have tremendous milas. You know, we gave up a lot to get where we are. And we continue every day, right? Mesiris Nefesh is really, it's a real thing. You know, you have things that you want to do, but you're not supposed to do. And through not doing them, you know, I think that really is our, our avaida in these days. Is, it is that Messiris Nefesh, that Hashem really craves that Messiris Nefesh. That's why there's so many temptations around us. There were not temptations in in the shtetl. You know, there was really nothing there. There were other things. There was a Messiris Nefesh that was a different type of thing, but that appears to be our, our avaida. And um, we come from a, a special background and we bring a unique facet to the Jewish people, this phenomenon of people who look like I used to look now looking like I look now, Mm -hmm. um, and and being quite comfortable with both. (laughs) I didn't tear up the photos of myself from those days. That would serve no purpose. I think it it really illustrates the the beauty and the the power of, of Judaism that it can take a person from that extreme to where I am today.
0: So how do you sum it all up now? You're looking at these different stages of your life from the punk rock version of yourself to your time on the reservation and some of the spiritual mm-hmm. searching you were doing to where you ended up through Chabad. How do you view that road that you went on in terms of, was it all steps towards where you are today? Were they detours you had to take? What's your umbrella perspective on the whole journey? It's a noisy journey,
1: Jeff. <laughs> it's a noisy journey and it's a classically Balchuva journey the kain Gadol had a row of, of bells on the hem of the, of the garment because even on a day like Yom Kippur, a holy day, a, a day of purity, there was noise. Um, there's a noisy journey that, that bali Tshuva have. The place that the, the aron kodesh is concealed below the, below the Besamikdash, these winding, twisting catacombs in the words of the Rambam, there's a kind of a tortuous, twisting journey, but that gets to the deepest of deep, deep, deep places where the most precious thing is concealed. And from there can come to the surface.
0: So that's, um, that's what I see. You have such a beautiful perspective on the journey you went on, which is the perfect lead-in now to closing with what we like to call the lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a few super fast questions. Don't overthink them. Just tell me the first thing that pops in your head. Are you ready? I am. Okay, so let's start easy by you telling me what your favorite Shabbos food is. Herring. Herring. I'm allergic to fish, so that is not on my list. What do you like about Mm -hmm. herring? It's a very cultural thing. You know, fish
1: have very positive qualities, right? There's a very Balchemska thing about fish, and it has just a flavor that goes perfectly with a nice single malt.
0: That's a good lead into a question from our producer, Gary. He wants to know, when it comes to whiskey, peaty or non-peaty? Peaty. Well, you said that with confidence. Why?
1: You know, it's noisy. It's, it's <laughs> noisy. I, I like noise. I think a Petey whiskey is, is kind of noisy. Um, it's got that sort of um, toasted Band-Aid tang to it. And um, my favorite Petey
0: whiskey is called Ardmore, or as I call it, Admore.
1: So it doesn't
0: get any better than that. And as someone who didn't get to experience Shabbos for the early part of your life, what would you say is the best thing about having it every week? Um, the fact that
1: it, it's an incredible marker in your cycles, right? So you have it. you have a daily cycle of, from Moida to Biodra at night, and then the week kind of revolves around Shabbos and you feel the week close, right? When you reach Shabbos, you've accomplished something and you feel that the week has closed and you feel now that, um, after Shabbos, I always, I can feel that the, the week has now begun with us, but with a special blessing. So adding that, that rhythm just makes me feel in sync with the entire spiritual cosmos. The entire seder hasidicalist kind of revolves on that. You know, malchus descending and then and then ascending. You know, when you're in tune with it, then you know you ex, you experience a kind of an internal harmony that is unattainable otherwise.
0: I'm guessing that you also have a favorite Hasidic discourse. Can you tell me about that?
1: I, I guess the one that I the one that I, the one that I tend to learn with the most, uh, vigor is, is the one it's called Tetzave, which was distributed by our Rebbe in Nun Beis, 1992. It was originally delivered prior to that, but was, was given out, um, as the last corrected, elucidated mimer. Uh, the most recent one that the Rebbe has given us is that one. So it's, I think, as people that are we're trying to be Hasidim, we view that as, you know, the Rebbe's instructions to us. So, if that's the case, it's kind of the summation of the, you know, that phase of the of the Rebbe's nusias, and we're in a we're in a, a certain phase now, and that's really kind of our 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 marching orders every year. You know, so to learn that every year, and to use that to reinvigorate our daily practices, um, I would have to say that one, although. Now that you're asking me, other ones are, are vying for my attention <laughs> only get in one. my head. But I only get one. So it would definitely be va'ata titsava. If you think about the word vaata titsava or that phrase, Moshe's name does not appear in that entire Maima. It just says Vaata, you. So when I say Jeff, you're gonna look at me. But when I say you, it's a very it's a deeper level of connection. So rather than a concealment, it, it looks like it conceals because it doesn't use the person's name, but it's actually a deeper level. And titsava is, is only used that one time in the whole Torah. That Titsava appears just the, in that one place. Um, so we see it as meaning connection. Connection. Tva'ata means, and you connect. You, the Moshe Rabbeinu of the generation. So our Rebbe, your job is to connect the Jews with their essential self. And that's a journey that I was on, right? Trying to find out, how do I connect my outer with my inner self? And it was the Rebbe, the, the Rebbe's the one that, you know, that I saw in the front page of the Boston Globe, the Reb brought me on that journey. So I, I live with that mimer. If, if I could live with it every day, if I could say after 120 years, when they say to me, Bolin, w- w- what do you have? I, if I could say I lived with a little bit of Atatatav every day, I think that might work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that officially takes you out of the lightning round. So well done. And let me just close by saying Shmuel, well done today. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time and thanks for sharing your inspiring Jewish journey. A great pleasure. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing shabbos at I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.